Welcome to Youth Court Unsealed, a look behind the gavel. I'm Judge Stacey O'Neill. I'm a county court, youth court judge in Madison County, Mississippi. And I'm Stacey Bevel, and I am the county court, youth court judge in Lee County, Mississippi. Today, we're going to talk about the intake process, and the intake process is sort of the beginning of a youth court matter. So, uh, Stacy, how would you define the intake process? Intake is how we get the information, is how we get the case. There's a procedural way to do that, and we're going to get into that today, but the long and short of it is, how does this land up in my office, <laughs> and how do we get the information? From the get-go, there are phone calls or written reports. So we're not going to talk about emergency custody situations where we get that phone call in the middle of the night and there's an abuse situation or um, we need to take custody of a child or we need to respond to a juvenile who's committed a crime. So we're not talking about emergency custody. These are all the non-emergency or not the phone call in the middle of the night kind of situations. So I guess maybe the first thing to talk about is who makes these written reports? Let's talk about in delinquency first. We get those from law enforcement. Uh, those are police reports. We also have people that come in and fill out fill out reports here in the youth court. Yeah, so the, on the delinquent side, pretty much delinquency is whenever a juvenile commits a crime, the law calls that a delinquent act. The police may be working up an investigation. It may be a misdemeanor. It may be shoplifting. It, it's something where they don't feel the need that the child needs to be detained uh, for a matter of public safety. So they they do their investigation, and then that ends up with a police report, a written report that is then sent to the youth court. You want to move to the CPS side? Yeah, go ahead and move to the CPS. Okay. CPS uh, are abuse and neglect cases come through first through a hotline. CPS is ordered to maintain a 24-7 hotline. Uh, it is available by email also, and you are uh, able to go on or call and report abuse and neglect uh, in the state of Mississippi. And all cases come through that hotline. When they come to the hotline, they're screened by CPS. What some judges do not know is that before they are screened out, uh, they are supposed to talk to the judge about that because there are some cases that uh, they may decide to screen out that I don't agree to screen out. And that brings up a good point. Let me say this. The number for the hotline is 1-800-222-8000 in Mississippi. That's the number that anybody can call and uh, make a report to your point that some of those are screened out at that level of the hotline. Yeah, I didn't know that until maybe a year or so ago when something came to my attention through another route and then I asked about it and it had been screened out at, at that level. So I, I don't know that that's happening. I think that if something is considered not a valid or not credible or not something that wants to be dealt with because it doesn't sound like abuse or neglect, maybe it's screened out at the hotline level, but then the hotline then sends it out to the individual county offices, right? Yeah, that's correct. The counties uh, receive those uh, all during the day, all during the night, and they are assigned to a worker and uh, the investigation begins. The investigations are about a lot of different types of things. So maybe it's a teacher that is concerned about a child in their classroom who has bruises on their face, or, or, or the, it's a child that never takes a bath and comes to school dirty and smelling. 
Maybe it's a grandparent who's concerned that their grandchild is living in a drug-type environment because the parents are abusing drugs. Maybe it's a neighbor who overhears sounds in the backyard that sound like a violent episode with a child involved. Or, you know, sometimes maybe it's just a concerned citizen who observes a parent disciplining a child at Walmart and they disagree with what they've done and want to do something and so they call the hotline. If they get in the middle of an investigation and realize that there's a safety issue, then they call us, the judges, uh, or designee, to take emergency custody. That's not what we're talking about. So when that investigation begins and it's not an emergency safety issue, then they have 30 days to do their investigation, but they must enter that information into my kids within 24 hours so that the youth court is on notice that an investigation is taking place. The 24-hour rule actually is done by the order of a Supreme Court, of the Supreme Court of Mississippi. It's a 2015 uh, opinion signed by Justice Pierce that basically ordered everyone to use my kids and also ordered CPS to put that information directly into my kids within 24 hours of them receiving the case, the worker receiving the case. That is a referral. Um, That is their investigation. And they start working on that. That information, once it gets to the county and they have 24 hours to put it in my kids, is called a case form alert. Um, It's also called a referral. I mean, it comes with many names. But when you open up my kids as a judge, maybe other people too, I don't know, there's a little red thing at the top that says there are pending CPS case form alerts. And so let's talk about that list. What that actually means is that CPS has opened a case. They are able, uh, at that point, uh, CPS is basically when you go in it, uh, I had, I went over there one day because we don't see this part on the judge side as far as my kids, but I went over there one day and I want to, I want to see what you see. And they pull it up and it's a PDF fill in the blank with who, what, when, and where. That is what is put, is generated in my kids when they put that information in. And that is the case form, like what you were calling the case form alert. Um, That red box up there that we all live by is a list of cases that have been opened. And they're cases that, that CPS has opened, but they're still out there being investigated. They're not, they haven't been officially sent to the youth court to take action on yet because it's just a case form and then they have 30 days to do their investigation and when their investigation is complete they have to give that investigation to the youth court. One thing I do want to say about the investigation report in the process of that is uh, 4321-357 states that the Department of Human Services to promptly make an investigation or report concerning a child and any other children in the same environment and promptly present the findings thereto to the youth court intake unit. Um, there is nowhere in statute I can find that says at the end of your 30 days when it's due to your boss, to your supervisor, how long is it, do you have to give it to me in the court? Uh, I will tell you by... Um, court practice here, it's 15 days. I give them 15 days to get it to me. But the statute uses the word promptly. So I suggest 
that judges that are listening out there define what promptly means because um, we need to get those reports in here so we can start reading them and their information to be relevant. For years, my intake officer, and we'll get to who that is later, she would ride over to the CPS building and get a stack of reports that were finished, investigation reports that were finished, and bring it back to her office. Um, Now, the CPS workers are able to upload that investigation at the same time, in the same way with that case form that they fill out, that PDF. So either way that we get the investigation from CPS, it can then be communicated to our intake unit. Once it gets there and my clerk receives those, uh, there is a process where you go into the computer and basically you are telling my kids that you have received the investigation and that you are downloading it into the My Kids system and it formally becomes a case. Uh, it's assigned the numbers, the the uh, Supreme Court number, I'm not Supreme Court, Administration of Courts numbers, the tracking system numbers, Um, when you download that. And at that time, it becomes the judge's responsibility or the designee's responsibility of that court to actually read that report. Um, That's how it gets to me. And in the computer system, that's how I know because it goes from that alert list to the intake alert list. Yeah. So once the investigation is communicated to the youth court, clerk or the designated person that receives those investigations, then that person at the youth court does their magic to make it a youth court intake. And I imagine that there are a lot of different ways that different counties do that. Um, I know that there are probably a lot that just look at the paper investigation, maybe rather than on, on the computer screen. Let's talk about the intake unit. The job of the intake unit is to review all of these reports that are coming in from whether it's a police report, a CPS case form, um, a parent who files a a CHINS report, or the school system that files a truancy report. The intake unit is who looks at those written reports. So let me ask you first, Stacey, who is your intake unit? Have Have you, is it one or is it more people? Uh, My intake unit, and I have a large county, okay, so my intake unit is divided by the different divisions, meaning that I have uh, a designee, actually my court director of abuse and neglect services. She is a um, master's level social worker that, excuse me, she's almost a master's level social worker. We've got a little bit more to do on that degree. She does the one for CPS. And then I have another one that does the truancy. That same one does the delinquency. My intake unit looks like that. But in Mississippi, we have lots of different um, counties that are referee counties that, to be very honest, do not have the resources that I have. Uh, money-wise or staff-wise. So uh, I came from a county, a smaller county, that it was the secretary in the judge's office, in the referee's office, helped the judge uh, be the intake unit, you know, those kind of things. So it it morphs from uh, all different kind of people. The Uniform Youth Court Rule number eight that the, in every youth court division, the judge shall appoint one or more persons to function as the youth court unit. I want to remind judges, I think this is a very important, do an order to that effect. I did not do that when I first took the bench. 
And um, it also helps you with uh, AOC and your youth court support funds. So you have it documented who your people are when it comes time for all of that. But that's that's what mine looks like. And like I said, everybody's different. Yeah, so mine looks like this. I have an intake officer and she is looking at the CPS case forms. She's looking at the police reports that come in on delinquency. And then the prosecutor is part of that process too. So the intake officer and the prosecutor together are kind of making up that intake unit, looking at everything. So the intake unit gets these reports and then their job is to basically make a recommendation to the judge as to what we need to do with that information. And so let's talk about that. How they make that recommendation may come in different forms. Sometimes that recommendation comes in the form of, hey, judge, we need to talk to you about this one. Kind of what do you think? Here's what we're thinking, especially if they can't agree or if there's some sort of, we're not sure what to do. Um, But for the most part, it comes to me from my prosecutor as an intake order submitted to me to sign saying, this is the recommendation of the intake unit. We recommend this action. And so if I agree with that action, then I will sign that. And if I don't agree with it, then we kind of go back a few steps. I think it's important to differentiate between our delinquency and our uh, CPS, um, our abuse and neglect, because uh, I know that you did not have a DYS workers for a while. And so you were, you were depending on county, basically employees and your staff to make those recommendations. Well, I, I, I've never not had DYS employees. And so on the DYS side, uh, the police report comes in to my intake person, uh, who in my case is a county employee. And she um, speaks with the DYS counselors and gives out the cases to me. And then that DYS counselor brings the people in and has a a preliminary meeting with them. And my DYS counselor, uh, along with my intake person, makes the recommendation to um, then on the CPS side, uh, those investigations that we get back on the top has um, basically a, a, a somewhat of a letter to us from the CPS office that says, hey, this is what we are uh, requesting. This is what our recommendation is. Um, So at that time on the delinquency side and the CPS side, it looks a little different for me on the CPS side because we're having to review that entire investigation. We're having to read that investigation or your designee is reading that investigation. It's not as easy to me as on the delinquency side where they're making the recommendation, and I don't personally go back and and review their records, you know, on the delinquency side. In, in my kids, in my county, I make them put a note up there that basically says, you know, this is why we did this. And if there's any concerns that they want to talk about uh, that referral on the delinquency side, I sign uh, the order and I put in my findings whether because an an intake order if you look at it I think it's important to do that is that the top part of the intake order is what they believe should happen and the bottom part of the order is what you say is going to happen. I think maybe this may be different in different counties 
At what point does your prosecutor get involved in bringing either a delinquency or CPS? Once that order is given, I mean, once the um, recommendation, I actually get an intake order in my box in the My Kids system. And once I, if that one becomes a file petition, because there's an option there that if it is uh, in delinquency, I believe it says refer to your prosecutor for consideration of filing or whatever, uh, which is different than it used to be because it used to be that when you said file it, it got filed. And the language changed some that basically gave the prosecutor the discretion not to file it. I call him the grand jury. <laughs> He's the grand jury and, and decides what to do with it. So yeah, my our prosecutor here, and, and this is where I think counties are different. It'd be interesting to hear how different counties do it. And it's just been longstanding is that our prosecutor is involved in the intake process because in our case, it's a she, she, and it's been a she for the last 30 years. Um, she is the one who's going to file the petition and has, has to prosecute the case. And so at that investigation phase, she looks at it and she makes a decision. I, I need more information. She, if it's a delinquency, she's talking to the law enforcement officers involved. If we're waiting on something from the crime lab, which is a whole other issue. So she is the one who's going to have to prosecute the case. And so her discretion comes in there before the intake unit order comes to me. I think this goes back to just who you have on your staff and their uh, experience level, because my intake person for DYS is a years long youth court delinquency person, She, if she has problems, she's picking up the phone before they make that recommendation and talking to the prosecutor if they need to. But by the time that recommendation is made, that is when actually formally, if it's filed the petition, then it goes, we route it to the prosecutor to file the petition and do that, all that in my kids. So regardless of what it looks like everywhere, and I'm, I'm sure it looks different everywhere, especially those smaller counties or larger counties, Ultimately, we as the judge, we have to make a decision of what to do with this written report, what to do with this investigation. And some words are used interchangeably. Sometimes it's called a referral. Sometimes it's called an intake. We might refer to it as an investigation. We're kind of using those terms interchangeably. Okay, so we get that recommendation from our intake unit, whoever that intake unit is in your county that you've appointed to be that person or that group, you get that recommendation. And so then as a judge, you have to issue an intake order. One thing I might say about this intake order, it is ex parte. It is without a hearing. And in fact, the people that are the subject of these investigations don't know what recommendation has been made to us unless someone's told them. But more often than not, they don't know that this information has been given to us and that we are about to make a decision. So the decision that we make can be in a delinquency case, we can choose to take no action, which is basically case is closed, nothing happens. Number two, we can decide that an informal adjustment process be made. And the informal adjustment process is sitting down and saying, you know, the, the parents, the child, the DYS counselor sits down and says, okay, let's, let's come up with an agreement. It's an informal adjustment. You're not going to have to go before the judge. You're going to just deal with this without going to court. 
and they come up with, with a plan. That's an informal adjustment that usually lasts about six months. And if that isn't successful, then it comes back to the court and we take a different route. Number three, the child can be warned or counseled informally. And that is, you know, sit down with a counselor and, and really have that stern talking with them, thinking that maybe a warning is all that they need. Uh, number four says the child can be referred to youth court, drug court. And I'll just be honest, we typically don't do that as an intake on the juvenile drug court side of things. I find that doing it at disposition is much more effective than doing it here before an adjudication. And then number five, the, the matter should be referred to the prosecutor for considering whether or not to file formal proceedings. So, so basically we can take no action, we can take informal action, or we can go forward with a formal petition. So why don't you talk about the abuse and neglect side of intake? What are our options there? I want to mention that the, the rules, youth court uh, uniform rules, rule nine, if anybody wants to go to that and it lists them out separately. But on the uh, child protection side, uh, we have a take no action. I think that the vast majority of investigations that we get here in Lee County is our take no action cases. They have gone out and, and found that, you know, there's nothing to even open a case about. Then you have the informal adjustment process. It's listed as number two. To me, that's kind of like an in-home case, maybe. I, I always struggle with this. I always struggle with what does informal adjustment process mean in, the, in CPS? What do you think? Well, an informal adjustment means that there is a problem, but maybe the problem is more because of poverty or maybe just young parents who don't don't know better. They need some education, um, a family that doesn't have a baby bed. So informal is just one of those things that we can cure the problem. There is a problem. It's not just a counsel and warn kind of problem, but it is it's a little more serious. So Let's see if CPS, if we can informally just kind of fix this and it, and it solves the problem. Well, then you roll on uh, to number three, and that is monitor the child, family, and other children in the same environment. So putting together what you said with this is the informal could be that uh, you are directing them to services. And number three is if you want to open that in-home case and monitor it and keep it open for a little while to see how um, to see how that works. When we get the monitor child and family in the same environment uh, recommendation, that means they have opened a case on their side. You know, it has become a, a CPS case, a take no action, you know, they shut it down. Number three is you monitor them in their home. And then number four is to be warned, counsel and release informally which like what you said before, I think ties into like the same with the delinquency that um, I think about truancy cases, you know, too, or I think about uh, mama didn't take the child to go get their shots on time or something, you know, the police, the, not the police, the hospital reported. And you just sit down and you're like, you got to do better. And, and this is what you need to do. And we're not going to get involved in this because you're going to go do it. Um, and and giving them those resources to to know which way to go, um, and then it shuts down the case, and then of course refer it to the prosecutor for consideration of filing um, 
a, a petition. So I'm just going to be honest here because that's what we're trying to do on this. I do a lot of take no actions and I do some take formal actions. I don't do a whole lot of the in-betweens. We do some monitor, you know, monitor the family. The number two, three, and four, sometimes they fix things in the family before the, their investigation is complete. Let's say they needed a baby bed, um, or let's say that the child wasn't, they, they might be doing that counsel and warning informally or educating them informally before it ever comes to me. So at that point, I'm taking no action. Um, you have to have a lot of confidence in your CPS workers to not file a petition if one needs to be made. That's not always the case, but that's not always the case because of the turnover that happens. I have situations, and, and this is something ongoing in our in our uh, back and forth with our uh, CPS, is the worker goes out, there's not food in the home, there's not... Um, proper clothing, that there is a physical neglect issue, okay? And, you know, my CPS for a long time, if they could fix it in that 30-day window, it was a take no action. But I would get the report and I would read it. And clearly it was a substantiated report. But they called it unsubstantiated because they fixed the problem with them before they closed their investigation. And some people are like, why are you being so ticky? Well, let me explain what that looks like two years down the road. Let's say that I do not, I leave it as unsubstantiated. It goes in my kids as a take no action. And y'all all know the judges that are out there, you pull up that my kids history and you start looking at them, and when they say take no action, you're automatically believing that there wasn't a problem. That is what the world, a lot of times when they say take no action, what that looks like for them. Well, my situation becomes that was a substantiated report. We may not have done anything as far as opening a case. There's nowhere in my kids for their click to be substantiated or unsubstantiated. And I really think there needs to be, because that's a whole nother issue about then what do you do about it? Because the intake recommendations are, how are we going to handle this problem? But like I said, there's nowhere to mark that it really was true. And, and there's, I think that that causes a lot of us to miss a lot of things on the history of cases, because you may not take time to go back and read all those old investigations because you just looked at the screen. It was like, take no action, take no action, take no action. I agree. I think that's an issue because I think if CPS is doing their, their job and if they have the people and they have the resources, a lot of these calls that they get in, can they can fix it with services. You know, a, a young parent that doesn't have diapers and formula, well, it may be as simple as connecting them with WIC, or it may be as simple as getting them set up with, with resources or helping them. And, and they can do that in their 30-day investigation. So by the time it comes to us, we don't need to do a formal. So I agree with you. It gives them credit for what they're doing. And I think it shows up, you know, it doesn't give us credit also at the court for having prevention because what that is, those, those other things are prevention. We kept them out of custody. And if we just pick no action or file a petition, 
then we're losing all that. I'm a data freak. Y'all know I'm a data freak. We lose all that data between the two of reasonable efforts. What reasonable efforts did CPS do to keep them coming out of custody? I think that's reflected by that. Now, I want to say this. The substantiated unsubstantiated comes with a double-edged sword because you know as well as I do when CPS runs a background check on somebody or runs them through their MACWA system, and let's say it's a grandmother that uh, wants to get you know placement Judge, we can't. I got a substantiated report. You know, it. I hear it all the time. Well, I'm like, well, what was the report? You know, and so we have to because their system substantiated means guilty. To me, substantiated doesn't really mean guilty. It just means that it happened, and it might not be a fault assignment. Or right. I mean, or that 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 is something that needs to go further. Another substantiated unsubstantiated confusion out there is if if it's an abuse neglect situation we have original exclusive jurisdiction in youth court unless there is a pending custody battle going on in chancery court and if there's already a chancery court divorce custody issue going on then it doesn't come to youth court it goes to chancery court and so what i have found over the past years is I'll get a report that says unsubstantiated there's a matter in chancery court so they've unsubstantiated it on the basis that it's not coming to me it's it's going to go to chancery and so like wait a minute that that's confusing too because a lot of times the chancery court will then will get a rule six subpoena from chancery court because mom and dad are fighting and they want to see the cps report well, the CPS report is going to say unsubstantiated, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. That just means CPS started investigating, saw that it was a chancery court matter and said, well, wait a minute, this, this didn't go into the youth court, so we're going to unsubstantiate it. I think that may be different in different counties around the state. And I don't think that is necessarily a CPS policy to unsubstantiate it because there may be chancellors that deal with CPS investigations. I don't know. That's one of those questions I'd love to have a chancellor on that could tell us, well, this is what it looks like from our perspective. So yeah, the unsubstantiated take no action doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It may, it may mean something else completely. When we sign that order that says, what happens next, then if it's a take no action, nothing happens. The people aren't notified that, hey, there was an investigation, that, that it's just nothing happens. So, so let me ask you this. Would you agree the overwhelming majority of, of referrals that come in, intakes that come in are take no action? In my county, they are. They're and, truly take no action. They went out there and what was alleged in the allegation was not true, number one and nobody needed any services. So in my county, I, I would say that as well. And so in a normal year, how many, do you know how many referrals your intake unit is processing? In a typical year, and I just pulled the numbers from the last 12 months, I had total referrals for the last 12 months, if this is correct, we're at about 900 referrals. And I'm thinking you're going to be more than that for, the, for a 12-month kind of period. But of those 900, it's about a 60-40, 60% of those are protection, about 40% of those are delinquency. But then 
the number of cases that actually go forward for adjudication is going to flip-flop. Our delinquency are going to far outweigh our protection abuse and neglect cases. So in my county, the number of CPS investigations will just compare. Last year, uh, I had 1,181. It was the number of investigations that were sent to my county. Uh, now, again, not screened out, maybe from a higher level. And so far this year, um, we have 656 through July. So um, I think we're going to be a little lower this year, but that is about average of what we're looking at. Uh, but you were talking about your um, your delinquency and see my delinquency looks is flopped from what you are. My delinquency in 2022 was 341. And then in 22, we look probably to be more than that, but not anything like what you have. And you don't have the CPS world that I do. Completely different everywhere. Let's just take that number. You've got, you've had 600 CPS cases, which means 600 calls to the hotline, 600 investigations, 600 times that your staff, your your designee has to sit and, and read those investigation reports and make a decision about what, what they recommend you do. And then you as a judge having to make decisions about does this go forward? That, that's, a, that's a huge burden. It's a huge responsibility, huge duty at every level. And so, you know, everybody is easy to criticize CPS about not doing a good job and not but just imagine, you know, we're in August and you've had 600 so far, 600 something so far this year. And how many CPS workers, frontline workers, do you think is your average that are handling those investigations? My investigation unit has been operating with one supervisor for a while. And because when everybody had a chance to go, they wanted to go to the permanency and well-being. Most everybody did uh, to the foster care part side. And so you know, we have been struggling four or five. I would say four or five at the max. And there have been times when there are two or three. And I went for one period of time where I had one. And, you know, these are not lighthearted investigations. These are, you know, sometimes very serious investigations. And, and, and these CPS workers are social workers. They're not law enforcement. They are not trained detectives. They and so they're doing the best they can. And sometimes we get law enforcement reports on a CPS abuse and neglect case when it's serious enough for them to investigate. I want to pick up on two things you said in that statement. First, the responsibility. You know, if you're a judge, listen to this. You have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're watching the news, flipping through Facebook, and there is a child that has been, God forbid, murdered or abused or something awful has happened to them. And, and most of the time it is a death because, you know, you, you wouldn't know about it first a lot of times. And my stomach just falls because I'm like, did I miss it? You know, did I miss that that child needed help when I read or my staff read those 656 investigations? Did we miss it? Are we part of, of what happened? My cases, uh, the second part of what you were saying is I don't have the same job I had in 2019 when I took the bench. Maybe the number of cases are not dramatically different as far as the number coming in. But what is dramatically different is two things. We are taking more children into custody 
And number two, the situation here is it's more complex. You know, just like what you said, a CPS worker is not a law enforcement officer, but a lot of times they're being called on to be teachers and and, uh, uh, law enforcement officers and and, in their social work positions. And they're having to wear so many hats, they may not be qualified to wear. That's the things that keep me up at night, you know. And and I'll say that sometimes you look back and you see the longer you do this, you look back and you think, yeah. We, as a system, missed that. And those are hard to deal with. You have to be guarded not to react because then you're, you're causing trauma to remove children that don't need to be removed from their home. You're, and, and that's probably a whole episode. But, you know, just we, we can only make the best decision that we can make with the best information. And sometimes we get those investigations and we think, you know what, I'm just not comfortable with this amount of information. And I'll call my CPS worker and say, will you go back out and, and, and just, you know, they, they go look, go see if they did what they were supposed to do. Go see if, if that child's in school, go, go back and check. Um, And they will do that. This is a super very good point for us to be talking about is because I want to be clear there is a statute and I'm sorry I've got tons sitting in front of me that basically says you as the judge make the final decision on what the outcome of the case is when they send you that investigation that is their recommendation and we do have the final say we have to feel we have to sleep at night with the decision that we make to either take no action or to do something different. The seriousness of the cases, I think the intake process is probably one that is most misunderstood. That written report comes in, there's a case form alert, that little red band at the top. And then once the intake officer downloads it, creates a My Kids case, then there's an intake alert and that notifies your intake unit that, hey, these cases came in and you need to do something about them, make a recommendation. Um, and then when those intake alerts go away, whenever an intake order is issued, but that is a very, a very large responsibility and part of what we do as youth court judges that is not seen by the public. The, the hundreds of intakes that we do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis is a whole docket that is very much mysterious to the person that calls that hotline and and never knows what happens to the complaint they've made. Um, And and sadly, a lot of times to the families that get the knock on the door that says somebody's made an allegation, they never hear anything else either, because at that point, what we do is, is secret from them. I think they would have a right to know if they asked the CPS worker, but a lot of times it's months between the knock on the door and when we sign that intake order, just because of the process being slow. I have just a couple of takeaways, and I think we're probably done in this topic. Number one, as the judge, even statutorily, it states that it is your responsibility to ensure that the intake process is is being done in your county. I think that is uh, and you know that's not going to court that's not dealing with the things we deal with every day that's a whole subsection of the life we live um and but at the end of the day it is our responsibility and the second thing is 
this intake process is put in place for us as judges to be advised of everything that is going on in our county, whether it be, you know, whether it be a take no action, whether it be a file a petition, you know, and I think that we need to make sure that all of that is being handled because I, I, I keep saying this and I'll, y'all tell me to shut up for it's over with about being a data freak, but we have as judges, probably the only people in your county that had in your staff that has an umbrella look of what your county is going through, you know? Yeah. All of that is not put in your system. You are not getting that full look. And, um, and we as a state are not getting um, credit for all the work we're doing because Rex Mohan is our, my kid's guy, garbage in, garbage out. I don't know how many times he said that to us in training, but you know, we have to make sure that so we can have good records that, you know, and also even more important than that is, you know, what's going on in your county and you're able, I use that data to talk to um, community organizations. They want to know why our kids coming into custody. You know, what are y'all doing with it? You can't know that and speak to that unless you're seeing it. And so, I, you know, I just want to leave, leave that uh, last thought that you've got a bird's eye view of your county if you do the intake, uh, intake process uh, the right way. Yeah, and it's so important um, because in a lot of cases, it is life and death decisions that we're making. Um, but we signed up for it and uh, it's a it's an important task and we again just like the last time we talked about dispositions we have a lot of help that get us to that point of making a decision another one of my takeaways is that we are really talking in our state about what all our 82 different counties look like and they're coming from a smaller county before I got this job you know we have got to come together um as a state to give these smaller counties and even the larger counties, make sure that, yeah, the resources available, whether it be money or staff or whatever, to do the intake process. And as a judge, you have to advocate for that because there are statutes that give you that authority and it gives you that, that not the authority, but also the task for you to advocate for those resources with your board of supervisors or or whatever agency you need to do with. So uh, that's another one that I think that that we as judges, that's another thing on our list is we are to advocate for our staff and, and to have enough to handle this process. Because if we don't have the staff to handle it and it doesn't get done, then we're missing something. And children get hurt. Yeah. All right. Until next time. We are adjourned.